the Bermuda Triangle. For decades, it's been surrounded in mystery, absorbing countless vessels, including ships and aircraft, and of course, the individuals occupying them. Today, we're going to embark on a journey into the unknown, exploring the enigma that shrouds one of the most perplexing disappearances in aviation history. So stow your tray tables, unplug your cords if you're sitting in an exit row, place your seat in the upright position, as we delve into the story of military aircraft that vanished without a trace, leaving behind questions that echoed through time. Join us on this riveting expedition where whispers of conspiracy, uncharted territories, and an unexplained phenomenon converge in the eerie depths of the Bermuda Triangle. But beware, dear listeners, for the more we uncover, the more mystery tightens its grip. Are we ready to uncover truth, or will we be succumbed into the ever-elusive allure that is the Bermuda Triangle secrets? So welcome aboard this journey where the line between reality and myth becomes hazy as the horizon itself. Welcome to Destination Aviation. Welcome back to the podcast, listeners. I know I've been off a little bit here, uh, off from my normally scheduled posting of podcast videos. As I mentioned in the last one, I actually went camping up in Michigan for this last weekend. Uh, got pretty cold, but camping is not camping without some cold weather, right? That's just the way. Uh, as soon as I say the word tent or camper or whatever might have you, um, the gods of weather shine down with some potential flurries and maybe rain or whatever it has in store. But it was a good trip. I actually had a moment to stop in at the Ross Common County Airport, which was cool. I, I honestly was not planning on going to it. I had flown in there about 20-some years ago, uh, and I had a picture in front of the terminal, which hasn't changed at all. It was old when I was there over 20 years ago. It's even older now, but it's holding up. Your typical, you know, small... General Aviation Airport, nice little pilot lounge area, computer that kind of works, blinking screen. No, it was it was cool to see. It was cool to reminisce. Uh, I actually took a similar photo to the one that I had back in the day. So uh, it was it was an unexpected event. Uh, I actually went by, kind of were saying to ourselves, "Well, wait a minute, isn't that the airport we flew into?" <laughs> I guess they had an airport restaurant back in the day. But even when we flew over, as we started to piece together the initial trip, I think the ideology was we were going to go to the airport restaurant and the uh, Roscommon Houghton Lake Airport and then uh, realized 20-some years ago it wasn't open. And, of course, nowadays it's not. Um, I think we saw the old cash register through the window of, of said restaurant from back in the day. Definitely a cool little airport if you haven't been to that area in Michigan. If you're in the Midwest region, I would recommend at least stopping in for maybe a touch and go or land and kind of take in the scenery. They have some really cool campgrounds there. The campground we stayed at was actually the state park, uh, which was South Higgins Lake State Park. So if you do fly into Roscommon County, I think it's probably roughly about... I'd say a five to 10 minute drive to the state park. So it's relatively close. Even if you flew in and wanted to hike over with a tent or something, uh, probably be a pretty easy walk. Um, I think they even have a nature trail back through the woods that, that leads some of that distance. So could be a cool adventure trip that you may want to take in your aircraft uh, and then go see some of, uh, we'll say, northern mid-Michigan region. Back here, I'm actually sitting in front of my bay window in my house. 
I have not done my podcast from this location before. Uh, I usually do it in different areas within the house. Now I'm sitting here looking out. Uh, we actually are getting some snow flurries in. We were up last night flying around a little bit. It was cold. It was hovering right about freezing temperature, but the Cessna 172 had some great performance. Uh, and the moon came out last night, which was really fantastic to see along the skyline of Chicago. So great, uh, great night. We actually just installed a new beacon at our airport. And the beacon light that we had was relatively diminished over time. And this one, you can see, I could see it probably, I was 15 nautical miles out and can see our rotating beacon, which is great. Uh, we have had some reports from other pilots of 60 up to 60 nautical miles out. So uh, that's really cool to hear. Uh, nice, you know, it's even though it's probably one of the more generic uh, navigational aids at an airport, it is nice to, I will say it's comforting probably as the beam on a lighthouse is comforting to a sailor coming into port. Do they necessarily need a lighthouse anymore with GPS and everything else we have? Probably not, but it is a comforting light to have on the horizon nonetheless. So in the news, we have a new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson. No, that is not the name of your insurance provider. That is the name of the new Speaker of the House. So that's good. Hopefully, we kind of move forward. I think somewhat of an unknown. So all of us in the aviation industry are trying to get a little understanding of the Louisiana congressman's background, especially when it comes to aviation. And uh, there has been some positive signs that he wants to move FAA reauthorization forward. So hopefully that means that we will see something here in the near future and get back on track. Good. Also, on the other side, we had a uh, Senate confirmation of Michael Whittaker for the FAA administrator. So he is in place now, was sworn in by Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg. The FAA is now moving forward with a leader. Uh, from all intended purposes, it looks like he's the right guy for the job at the moment, which is good. So now we have some leadership at the FAA, maybe some positive signs in the House. Maybe we can start moving forward with getting some reauthorization on the books. So we will see. There's still a lot moving forward from between Senator Duckworth and, you know, back and forth with Senator Siena on the 1500-hour rule and professional pilots and whether there's, it seems like both have kind of stuck to their talking points at this juncture. So it, it seems like there's no wiggle room. But as in Washington, just as it seems like there's no wiggle room, something happens. So hopefully uh, we'll get some movement, get FAA reauthorization underway, and then continue on down with the business at hand of aviation. And other things in the news, I'm sure others have seen this, but the two aircraft that had collided at the Houston Hobby Airport uh this is impressive. Nobody uh, got hurt, and all both aircraft uh, were able to be on the ground safe and sound. I actually, the day that it happened, some people that I know sent me over the audio, the ATC audio, um, as in most things in life. <laughs> um, the pilot that actually was in the wrong was very um, dismissive that he did anything incorrect uh, on the radio. <laughs> uh, and then we later learned out he took off without permission. Uh, so it was a Twin Hawker that hit a Cessna Citation 510. It sounds like Cessna Citation 510 was cleared to land, and it was intersecting runways. And then the Hawker on departure actually struck the Cessna 510. It actually ripped off part of the back of this this aircraft. It's like I said, it's just amazing and impressive that both aircraft were able to maintain, I guess, composure <laughs> um, and get their aircrafts to the respected area. Especially the um, 
the hawker that was on departure was able to make it back to the airport. As grumpy as the pilot sounded on ATC transmissions, uh, he was able to make it back to the airport. So uh, kudos to the air traffic controllers for uh, maintaining their composure and glad to see that uh, everyone is, is safe on the ground. All right, so to the story at hand, you know, we're at the end of our spooky season here. Today is actually Halloween. I am going to try my best to get this out so nobody says, why did you have a Halloween episode in November? Uh, I have my trick-or-treater bag filled. I got the pumpkins out front. Dave on the minion side, he's blown up and ready with his bat wings to greet any kids that may come along because it's much better to have a trick than a treat. I don't need any eggs all over my house. Maybe that's why I'm sitting in this bay window. I can keep front and center on any situation that may be coming down the driveway, especially if it has one of nature's hand grenades in their hand. But if you go back to some of our episodes, uh, when we talked about the vanishing over Lake Michigan, it was actually our first episode. There was something that we alluded to, which was the Michigan version of the Bermuda Triangle. So I figured what fitting way to end our spooky season of month in the Bermuda Triangle, the actual Bermuda Triangle, and one of aviation's most captivating mysteries. In this episode, we're going to go into great detail on the missing formation of what's referred to as Flight 19. So as we embark into this journey in the heart of the Bermuda Triangle, where mysteries unfold like chapters in an ancient tomb, our tale begins on December 5th, 1945. On this fateful day, the sun casts its glow over the Fort Lauderdale Naval Air Station in Florida. Five U.S. Navy Avenger torpedo bombers, collectively known as Flight 19, were gearing up for what was supposed to be a routine three-hour training mission. So we're going to pause briefly to talk about the U.S. Navy Avenger torpedo bombers, or Grumman TBF Avenger. There was an aircraft manufactured by General Motors in the era of World War II, developed initially for the United States Navy and the Marine Corps and eventually it was used by several air and naval aviation services around the world. The Avenger entered U.S. service in 1942 and saw its first action in the Battle of Midway. Despite the loss of five of six Avengers on its combat debut, it survived in service to become the most effective and widely used torpedo bomber in World War II, sharing credit for sinking super battleships Yamamoto and Musashi, and being credited for sinking 30 submarines. It was modified greatly after World War II, and it remained in service until the 1960s. Now, Flight 19 undertook a routine navigation and combat training exercise, and they did this in the TBM-type aircraft. The assignment was called Navigation Problem Number 1, a combination of bombing and navigation, which other flights had completed or were scheduled to undertake that day. The flight leader was United States Navy Lieutenant Charles Carroll Taylor, who had about 2,500 flying hours, mostly in this type of aircraft while his trainee pilots each totaled 300 flight hours and 60 flight hours in the Avenger. Taylor had completed a combat tour in the Pacific Theater as torpedo bomber pilot of the aircraft carrier USS Hancock, and had recently arrived at the Naval Air Station of Miami, where he had also been a torpedo bombing pilot instructor. The student pilots had recently completed their training missions in the area where this flight was supposed to take place. The trainees following Lieutenant Taylor that day were Captain Edward Powers, George Stivers, Forrest Gerber, and Ensign Joseph Bozzi. Each aircraft flown that day was a version of a Grumman TBF Avenger. As we spoke about a little bit, Grumman-built Avengers were designated TBF and GM-built 
built aircraft such as these were designated TBM. Each aircraft was fully fueled and during pre-flight checks was discovered they were only missing clocks. Navigation of this route was intended to teach dead reckoning principles, which involved calculating, among other things, elapsed time. The apparent lack of timekeeping equipment was not a cause for concern as it was assumed each man had its own watch. Takeoff time was scheduled for 13.45 local or 1.45 p.m., but the late arrival of Taylor delayed departure until 2.10 or 14.10 hours. Weather in Fort Lauderdale was described as favorable, sea state moderate to rough. Taylor was supervising the mission, and a training pilot had the role of leader out front. The exercise involved three legs. While the flight having flown four, the fourth being a return to the Naval Air Station in Fort Lauderdale, after takeoff, all the men flew on a heading of 091 degrees, almost due east, for 56 nautical miles, until reaching Hens and Chicken Shoals, commonly called Chicken Rocks, where low-level bombing practice was carried out. The flight was to continue on a heading for another 67 nautical miles before returning to course at a 346 heading for 73 nautical miles in the process of overflying the Grand Bahamian Island. The next scheduled turn was to a heading of 241 degrees to fly 120 nautical miles, at the end of which the exercise would have been completed and the Avengers would turn left to return to the Naval Air Station in Fort Lauderdale. So if you go back and you look at those numbers we just described, that is the Bermuda Triangle by definition. Plus, you are out over the ocean. As we were talking last night when we were flying over Lake Michigan, it's very easy to lose the horizon. We talked a little bit in the past about JFK Jr.'s flight. You're out over a body of water. It's really easy to become disoriented in that type of flying. Radio conversations between the pilots were overheard by base and other aircraft in the area. Practice bombing operation is known to have been carried out because at about 1500 hours or 3 p.m., a pilot requested and was given permission to drop his last bomb. 40 minutes later, another flight instructor, Lieutenant Robert Cox, in an FT-74, was forming up with this group of students for the same mission, asked Powers for his compass reading. Powers replied, I don't know where we are. We must have got lost after the last turn. Cox then transmitted, this is an FT-74 plane or boat calling Powers. Please identify yourself so someone can help you. The response after a few moments was a request from the others in the flight for suggestions. FT-74 tried again and identified as F-28 Taylor came on. F-28, this is FT-74. What is your trouble? Both of my compasses are out, Taylor replied. And I'm trying to find Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I am overland, but it's broken. I am sure I'm in the Keys, but I don't know how far down, and I don't know how to get to Fort Lauderdale. The FT-74 informed the Naval Air Station that the aircraft was lost, then advised Taylor to put the sun on his port wing and fly north up the coast to Fort Lauderdale. Base operations then asked if the flight leader's aircraft was equipped with a standard transmitter, which could be used to triangulate the flight's position, but the message was not acknowledged by the FT-28. Later, he would indicate that his transmitter was activated. Instead, at 16.45 or 4.45 p.m., FT-28 radioed, We are heading of 030 degrees for 45 minutes, then we will fly north to make sure we are not over the Gulf of Mexico. During this time, no bearings could be made on the flight, and the transmitter could not be picked up. 
Taylor was told to switch frequencies, but replied, I cannot switch frequencies. I must keep my planes intact. At 4.56 p.m. or 16.56 hours, Taylor was again asked to turn on his transmitter if he had one. He did not acknowledge, but a few minutes later advised his flight change course to 090 degrees due east for 10 minutes. About the same time, someone in the flight said, damn it, if we could just fly west, we would get home. Head west, damn it. The difference of opinion later led to questions about why students did not simply head west on their own. It had been explained that this can be attributed to military discipline. As the weather deteriorated, radio contact became intermittent, and it was believed that five aircraft at this point were more than 200 nautical miles out to sea, east of the Florida Peninsula. Taylor radioed, We'll fly 270 degrees west until landfall or running out of gas and requested a weather check at 524 p.m. or 1724 hours. By 1750 hours or 550 p.m., several land-based radio stations had triangulated Flight 19's position as being within 100 nautical mile radius of 29 degrees north and 79 degrees west. Flight 19 was north of the Bahamas and well off the coast of central Florida. At 18.04 hours or 6.04 p.m., Taylor radioed to his flight, holding 270. We didn't fly far enough east. We may as well just turn around and fly east again. By that time, the weather had deteriorated even more and the sun had set. At around 6.20 p.m. or 18.20 hours, Taylor's last message was received. He was heard saying, all planes close up tight. We'll have to ditch unless landfall when the first plane drops below 10 gallons. We'll all go down together. So obviously, as we talked about, you're out over the water. There's a lot of confusion happening here. We've talked about this before and some others when we talked about Eastern Airlines that crash in the Everglades. Crew resource management, especially in the military, that maybe don't want to contradict their superior officer. Unfortunately, in these circumstances, you can tell the confusion is immense between the group. And on a side note, if you were flying in the weather, I'm looking out at the window right now, you would be in the same position because it is really coming down out there. Uh, we're finally getting snow here in Illinois uh, on Halloween, and that is not a trick. I don't even think it's a treat necessarily, <laughs> but all right, let's get back to our story. So we're over the ocean. We're confused. We have minimum fuel. The first person dropped below 10 gallons. We're all going to ditch. As it became obvious that the flight was lost, airbase aircraft and merchant ships were alerted. A consolidated Catalina departed after 6 p.m. or 1,800 hours to search for Flight 19 and guide them back if they could be located. After dark, two Martin PBM Mariner flying boats, originally scheduled for their own training flights, were diverted to perform square pattern searches in the area of 29 degrees north and 79 degrees west. Interesting enough, one of the search aircraft, the U.S. Navy Squadron Trainer No. 49, which joined the search, at 1927 hours or 727 p.m. from the Naval Air Station Banana River, now known as Patrick Space Force Base, called in a routine radio message at 1930 hours or 730 p.m. and was never heard from again. So now one of the search aircraft is missing. At 2115 hours or 815 p.m., the tanker SS Gaines Mill reported it had observed flames from an apparent explosion leaping 100 feet high and burning for 10 minutes at position 2859 north and 8025 west. Captain Shona Stanley reported unsuccessfully searching for survivors through a pool of oil and aviation gasoline. The escort carrier USS Solomons also reported losing radar contact with the aircraft at the same position and time. 
So there's a ton of information out there on the Bermuda Triangle. I think everybody listening probably has heard of it, knows probably what it is. Uh, as far as our purposes, I thought maybe it would just be interesting because I had read it, what the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration refers to the Bermuda Triangle as being. For decades, the Atlantic Ocean's fabled Bermuda Triangle has captured human imagination with unexplained disappearances of ships, planes, and people. Some speculate that the unknown and mysterious forces account for the unexplained disappearances, such as extraterrestrial capturing humans for study, the influence of the lost continent of Atlantis, vortex that suck objects into other dimensions, and other whimsical ideas. Some explanations are more grounded in science, if not in evidence. These include oceanic flatulence, which, yeah, that's... Farting, which is interesting. I had watched a documentary on this before. Uh, so methane gas erupting from ocean sediments and disruptions in geomagnetic lines of flux. Environmental considerations could explain many, if not most, of the disappearances. The majority of the Atlantic tropical storms and hurricanes passed through the Bermuda Triangle, and in the days prior to the improved weather forecasting, these dangerous storms claimed many ships. Also, the Gulf Stream can cause rapid, sometimes violent changes in weather. Additionally, a large number of islands in the Caribbean Sea creates many areas of shallow water that can be treacherous to ship navigations. And there is some evidence to suggest that the Bermuda Triangle is a place where a magnetic compass sometimes points towards true north as opposed to magnetic north. The U.S. Navy and the U.S. Coast Guard contend that there is no supernatural explanations for disasters at sea. Their experience suggests that the combined forces of nature and human fallibility outdo even the most incredulous science fiction. They add that no official maps exist that delineate the boundaries of the Bermuda Triangle, and the U.S. Board of Geographic Names does not recognize the Bermuda Triangle as an official name and does not maintain an official file on the area. The ocean has always been a mysterious place to humans, and when foul weather or poor navigation is involved, it can be a very deadly place. This is true all over the world. There is no evidence that mysterious disappearances occur with any greater frequency in the Bermuda Triangle than in any other large, well-traveled area in the ocean. So now we know the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration doesn't identify a parameter for what is the Bermuda Triangle, but just so we know for the context of this podcast, from what I've seen online, it's basically an area from Miami that covers through the Bahamas, all the way down to Puerto Rico, so San Juan, up to Bermuda of the United Kingdom. So that, in theory, would be your Bermuda Triangle location. Okay, so now we know some of the parameters of our Bermuda Triangle. The official investigation into this is our pilots, right? They're out over the ocean. They're disoriented. Their last communication uh, basically was if one of them's getting low on fuel, they're all going to ditch. One of the aircraft that were searching for our missing aircraft, they went down themselves. Reports of an explosion was seen. Nothing beyond an oil slick of aviation lubricants in the ocean. So this is the official investigation. A 500-page Navy board investigated and published a few months later their observations. Flight leader Charles Taylor had mistakenly believed that a small island he passed over were the Florida Keys. 
that his flight was over the Gulf of Mexico and that heading northeast would take them to Florida. It was determined that Taylor had passed over the Bahamas as scheduled, and he did, in fact, lead his flight to the northeast. So at this point, if he's over the Bahamas, heading northeast would have taken him farther into the Atlantic Ocean. The report noted that some subordinate officers did likely know their approximate position, as indicated by radio transmissions stating that flying west would result in reaching the mainland. As noted in the report, Taylor refused to change the radio training frequency to the search and rescue radio frequency. The training frequency was difficult to use because of interference from Cuban radio stations and also a radio carrier wave. Taylor was not at fault because the compass stopped working. The loss of the PBM-5, so the search aircraft in this, was attributed to an explosion that happened on the aircraft. The report subsequently amended cause unknown by the Navy after Taylor's mother contended that the Navy was unfairly blaming her son for the loss of five aircraft and 14 men, when the Navy had neither the bodies nor the airplanes as evidence. Had Flight 19 actually been where Taylor believed it to be, the flight would have made landfall within the Florida coastline within 20 minutes, depending on how far down they were. However, a later reconstruction of the incident showed that the islands visible to Taylor were probably the Bahamas, well northeast of the Keys he thought he was flying over, and that Flight 19 was exactly where it should have been. The board of investigation found that because of his belief that he was on base course towards Florida, Taylor actually guided the flight farther northeast out to sea. Further, it was general knowledge at the Naval Air Station, Fort Lauderdale, that if a pilot ever became lost in the area, the idea was to fly a heading of 270 or due west. Likewise, a rule of thumb was that any pilot who got lost going south would simply turn his plane around with the sun on his port side left and then following the Florida coast heading north. By the time the flight actually turned west, they were likely so far out over the sea, they had already passed the aircraft's fuel endurance. The factor combined with bad weather and the ditching characteristics of the Avenger meant there was little hope of rescue, even if they had managed to stay afloat. It is possible that Taylor overshot Gorda Cay and instead reached another landmass in southern Abaca Islands. He then proceeded northwest as planned. He fully expected to find the Grand Bahama Island lying in front of him. He eventually saw a landmass to his right side, the northern part of Abaco Island, believing that this landmass to the right was Grand Bahama Island and his compass was malfunctioning. He set a course to what he thought was southwest to head straight back to Fort Lauderdale. However, in reality, this changes course farther northwest, toward open ocean. To further add to confusion, he encountered a series of islands north of Abaco Island, which looked very similar to Key West Islands. The control tower then suggested that Taylor's team should fly west, which would have taken them to the landmass of Florida eventually. Taylor headed for what he thought was west, but in reality was northwest almost parallel to Florida. After trying that for a while, and with no land in sight, Taylor decided that it was impossible for them to fly so far west and not reach Florida. He believed that he might have been near Key West Islands. What followed was a series of conversations between Taylor and his other air crew and the control tower. Taylor was not sure whether he was near the Bahamas or Key West and he was not sure which direction he faced because of a compass malfunction. Some of the air crew believed that their compasses were working. Taylor then set a course northeast according to their compass, which should have taken them to Florida if they were in Key West. When that failed, Taylor set a course west according to their compass, which should have taken them to Florida if they were in the Bahamas. If Taylor stayed his course, he would have reached land before running out of fuel. However, at some point, Taylor decided that he had tried going west enough 
He then once again set a course northeast, thinking they were near Key West after all. Finally, his flight ran out of fuel, and he crashed into the ocean somewhere north of Abaco Island, east of Florida. So I will say this, even reading the account of what was in this naval report was extremely confusing. I can just imagine what it would have been like up in the sky during these events. As we were talking about when we were flying last night about different ways people navigate, you know, nowadays with things like foreflight, um, the technology has just advanced so far that somewhat would probably consider maybe a primitive way of flying versus what we have today. They were relying as best as they could on the information they had at hand. Uh, and obviously a lot of other things have been put in place about personalities and in these type of operations and following chain of command. There have been several discoveries ranging from 1986 up until 2015, but none of the wreckage that's been found has been attributed to any of the aircraft from the original squadron of Flight 19. And you can find several of those uh, throughout just searching, you know, uh, some of it was found. It's it's interesting. Some of it was found during uh, the Challenger explosion. Uh, we talked about Greg Phillips in our Pittsburgh episode where we're talking about U.S. Airways Flight 427. Uh, he actually investigated some of, of that incident with the Challenger as well. Uh, they did find some wreckage of an Avenger off the Florida coast, but once again, uh, none of this was attributed to this actual event. So as I was researching this, there's a lot of different conspiracy theories surrounding what happened to the squadron of Flight 19. I thought I would just read some of the more uh, interesting ones. Um, some theorists suggest that the Bermuda Triangle uh, swallowed them up in a time warp or wormhole and passed them through the space-time continuum uh, and led Flight 19 into a parallel universe. Alien abductions, of course. We even have a little bit of this on our podcast main image of a UFO in the sky. Uh, extraterrestrial enthusiasts proposed that Flight 19 encountered otherworldly beings of UFOs during their mission. According to this theory, these beings from another planet might have intervened, leading to the disappearance of the squadron. The Bermuda Triangle is infamous for alleged electromagnetic anomalies that can interfere with navigational instruments. Some believe that Flight 19 fell victim to such anomalies. This led to their thought of compass malfunctions and disorientation by the crew members. Government experiments. This could go maybe into our Janet conversation. A more grounded conspiracy theory suggests that the U.S. government was conducting secret experiments in the area, possibly involving advanced technologies or electro and magnetic warfare. And they assume maybe Flight 19 got caught in the crossfire and could have been a casualty of this clandestine activities. And then, of course, underwater cities and sea monsters. Venturing into the realm of fantasy, some propose the existence of an underwater city or ancient ruins beneath the Bermuda Triangle. Others go even further into suggesting encounters with sea monsters or colossal sea creatures that drag the planes and their crews into the depths. Of course, these theories add to the layer of the intrigue of an already perplexing mystery. Whether grounded in science or woven from the threads of the imagination, they all contribute to the enigma that surrounds the disappearance of Fly 19. So to synapse that very long report and then some of the maybe more stretched theories of what happened, the most widely and accepted and plausible explanation for the disappearance of Flight 19 is that the squadron ran out of fuel and ditched into the ocean. The exact location remains a mystery. 
According to officials in the investigation, it was determined that the flight leader, Lieutenant Charles Taylor, had become disoriented, leading his squadron off course. As their fuel dwindled, the planes were unable to find land or make it back to base. The prevailing theory is that the aircraft ran out of fuel and the crews were forced to make an emergency water landing. While there have been occasional discoveries of debris that may have or may not be linked to Flight 19, the exact location of their final resting place remains a mystery. The vastness of the ocean and the lack of advanced search and rescue technology in 1945 contributed to the enduring enigma surrounding their disappearance. In essence, the prevailing idea is that Flight 19 met a tragic end in the waters of the Atlantic, but the precise location remains an enduring secret of the Bermuda Triangle. So, with that being said, my friends, that is the end of our spooky season. The snow came down a lot while we were talking. I'd say we have about an inch on the ground, but the sun is now out again. But it's one of those days where squall lines keep blowing in and snow keeps coming in. But it looks rather nice in the trees, I have to say. So we'll get back to regular schedule programming now that October is over. I hope that if you have any Halloween festivities planned for the night, that you're safe. If you haven't subscribed to the channel, please consider doing so if you like our content. Uh, Shout out to India. We had a lot of people listening from the country of India. So uh, thank you for uh, listening to our podcast uh, and joining us along on this voyage. So I'm going to wrap this up here. I will be back to you within another week with another story. And uh, please keep submitting those plain tales. Uh, I love reading them and I love trying to get an idea of where to fit those in for future podcasts. So uh, thank you again, everyone, and I will see you down the runway.